And so what's going on here is that the, the church is growing. This is uh, right about the midpoint of the book of Acts. The church is growing, and the ministry to the Jewish church is fading from sight. There's a distinct period in the book of Acts where uh, Paul leaves the Jewish churches. He leaves the Jewish uh, synagogues, and he basically washes his hands and dusts the dust off his feet and says, you know, I'm going now to the Gentiles. And so as the church is growing, there's a lot of exciting things happening. But along with church growth comes the challenge of church unity. When churches grow, one of the main concerns is to maintain unity. And we can actually see through human history that the longer Christ's church has been on the earth, the more and more divisions arise through denominational splits and, and doctrinal error. And I mean, there are some 30, 50,000 different Protestant denominations. That's just in the last 500 years. Okay, so unity is a, is a struggle for the church. And when the church grows, unity becomes an issue that its leaders need to address. And that's what's going on here in the church. As the Gentiles are beginning to be saved, they're beginning to hear the gospel and respond and hear the Holy Spirit. It's very exciting. It's exciting to see new salvation. It's exciting to see God's word succeed. Come, coming with that is a jealousy from the Jews. We actually saw that when Paul and Barnabas go and they speak in Antioch and they give a sermon and everyone is really excited to hear how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. That's in chapter 13. And the Jews who are watching along, they start to recognize the success and the gospel message coming to others. And it says that they begin to become jealous. And they start to oppose God's servant. Now why would they do that? Doesn't, doesn't everybody want to see God glorified and increased? Well, when God's people were such an ethnocentric people, they were, they were the ethnic people of God, when they start to see you know, non-Jewish people coming into the covenant members of the church, they start to get jealous. They're tribalistic. And so they're opposing the ministers of the gospel, and yet nonetheless, the Jewish apostles are continuing to serve the Gentiles and continuing to be missionaries to them, understanding that God made a choice, that God made a choice that through the church, the gospel message through the Jews would actually spread to all the earth. And, and we have to ask the question, if God is really God, wouldn't it follow that the whole world will eventually serve and worship him? God is not a narrow, tribalistic God, but in fact, he worked through the Jewish people to bring the truth to the world. Now, um, one of the problems that is, that is coming up in this disunity, that one, of the, one of the wedges that's being driven in is actually the issue of circumcision, which is why we had Art read that passage in Genesis 17. This is an issue that became known as Judaizing, or the group that did it was known as Judaizers which was we want to Judaize new Christians, which means we want to drape them and, and cover them in the symbols of Judaism, which one of which was circumcision. Now, this is not a, a, a very big surprise. If you look through the Old Testament, the issue of circumcision was one of those that the Jewish people were very proud of. It was a sign for them of superiority. It was a sign for them of separation. It was a sign for them of God's choosing of them. One of my favorite examples of that is 1 Samuel 17, when little David comes 
to the battlefield and all of Israel is cowering in the shadow of Goliath. Do you remember what David says? He comes up and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would oppose the armies of the living God? Like, who is this scrub? Who is this guy? He's uncircumcised. Like, what are you guys doing? How are you afraid of him? And he has this boldness and pride and that distinguishing mark that he highlights is circumcision. Goliath is uncircumcised. We are God's people. We should have nothing to fear. And so I love that. So this symbol is very key. It's key to the Jewish people, and it's a mark of pride for them. And so when the Jews are seeing the Gentiles come in, that's naturally going to be one of the things that they want to impose on them. I mean, if there's one thing that you really need to identify as a Jew, that's it. That's it, okay? So this is... These Jews wanting to increase their influence and their cultural mark on these Gentiles are starting to impose this issue. And actually, Paul, in Galatians chapter 2, deals with this in more theological depth. He says to the Galatian people, which is right around the time of this Jerusalem council, he says to them, I am amazed that you are abandoning the gospel for another gospel. So when the Judaizers came along and said, you have to be circumcised to be saved, and the people in Galatia started to believe them, and they started to be circumcised, believing that they were being saved by that, Paul said, you are abandoning the true gospel. And what you're getting is no gospel at all. In other words, what you're getting is not going to save you. It's the opposite. You think you're achieving salvation, but the problem is when you go down this path, you're losing the gospel. You're losing the power to save you because you believe that you need to do something to be saved. And what I love about that book in Galatia, um, Galatians, I'm just going to read it for you, is that Paul knows their motives. This is just to get background on these men who are coming into the church saying you must be circumcised. Paul at the very end of Galatians says, see with What large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So he knows their motives. He's already discerned why they're doing this. It's so that they can make a good showing in the flesh. It's so that they can gather a bunch of people and say, these are our converts. These ones belong to us. These are our people. It's like putting a t-shirt on that says Evergreen Chapel. These are my converts. These are my people. And it also says that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. He doesn't mean persecuted by Gentiles and by the Romans. He means persecuted by the Jewish church. Because it is the Jews who would violently oppose the apostles of the gospel for saying... You are not saved through temple worship. You are not accepted by God through circumcision. You are not accepted by God because you tithe. You are not accepted by God even because you bring an offering. That's not what makes you clean before God. And the Jews who did not accept Christ were angry about this because they had devoted their lives to a system that they could manage, a system that they could perfect, a system that they could take pride in. Paul said about the Pharisees, they love to wear their fancy robes out in the street corners and and issue loud prayers. It was a system that the Jews ended up using to serve their own pride. 
And so when these men came by and said, you need to be circumcised, it was so that they could avoid persecution by the Jews. To say, no, look, we're keeping the law. But Paul says, if you know the true gospel, if you really know the meaning of the gospel, then that stuff does not get you to heaven. The thief on the cross, I'll say over and over again, is proof positive of that. Didn't need to be circumcised. Didn't need to be baptized. He was accepted by Christ through faith. And so what happens is these men come in, and this is, uh, this is again in Antioch, and they came down to the church in Antioch, and they started teaching this. And what happens is they actually go back up to Jerusalem. They travel. They create an entourage uh, to go up and get an answer on this issue. The church in Jerusalem was, again, sort of the head church. It was the church planting hub of the time. It was where the main apostles lived. It was where the main authorities were. It was like, if you want to get an answer to this, let's call head office. Well, they didn't have Twitter or texting back then, so they had to actually go up to get an answer in Jerusalem. That's what takes place here. And in chapter 15, we have a heading that says the Jerusalem Council. That's not just an incidental title. This is a major point in church history. Uh, there There are somewhere between seven and nine councils in the first about 400 years of church history. Each of them critical to organizing around the truth. A council would get together to basically say... There's some problems in the church. Some people believe this. Some people believe this. And they come together and they decide, they determine, they would actually debate through the scriptures. Anyway, a good counsel will. And they'll reject error and they'll hold fast to truth. And they'll say this, according to this counsel, this is what we believe the, the, uh, the truth is. And so it's to point the church forward and it's to make sure that the faith is handed down to the next generation. That's what a good counsel does. So we have the Council of Jerusalem, we have the Council of Nicaea. After the Reformation, the Catholic Church had the Council of Trent. And so they would, they would, counter, uh, they would have counter-councils to say, no, we reject the, the, the solutions of that council. And so councils where the church leaders come together to point the way forward and to pass on uh, the truth and the gospel to the next generation church. So that's what's going on in this uh, point. And this passage, actually the whole chapter 15 is devoted to the council in Jerusalem. It's a major element in the book of Acts and it's sort of a, it's a model for the church as to how to deal with issues in the church. I actually preached on Acts 15 when we discussed elders uh, a few months back. And so we're back here and and we're going to look at our text and we're basically going to look at uh, what happens, what is at stake in the church, and then what the church gains by going through uh, this issue. So we're going to look at what happens here and, 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 and what the significance is. We're going to look at, the, uh, look at the actual issue and determine how they debated through it. And then we're going to look at how the church benefits from this kind of debate. And so the first thing I want to highlight to you is that false teaching does enter the church, which means that defending the truth of the gospel is necessary at all times. It's necessary at all times. False teaching is always going to be wandering through the doors in your church and my church. It says in the first, we're really going to look at the first two verses here. It says that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. So men came down, they traveled, they made effort, they came to the church, and they were teaching the brothers. And so there's, there's sort of those three uh, 
pivot questions we can ask. We can look at a who, a what, and a how about this false teaching. False teaching. The first question is who was in the wrong? I mean, we just have an indicative passage here where it says, brothers from Judea were coming down and teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. So if you're reading that objectively, there's no real specific way to actually tell who Luke is indicating is in the wrong. You have Paul and Barnabas on the one side and you have the Judaizers on the other side. For all we know from those two verses, the Judaizers might be the right ones helping to correct the church. How do we know Paul and Barnabas are in the right, and how do we know the Judaizers are in the wrong? I think the text actually implies it. Uh, number one, because our, our text we know is inspired by God, and we know that Paul and Barnabas are the, the central characters that have been doing the Lord's work all the way along, and they're juxtaposed with some men. Okay, so the text kind of helps imply who is carrying the truth of the gospel and who is bringing in error. The text says, you know, some men came down from Judea, but Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. And so we need to recognize that God's servants who have proven faithful are likely the ones who are carrying the truth here. Now, the apostles did make errors. They were, they were not infallible as the Catholic Church asserts they were. Uh, Peter was confronted by Paul himself. Paul was a younger apostle and one who came later to the game. And yet when Peter was in error, Paul, and this is over the same issue in Galatians, Paul confronted Peter. Nonetheless, even though they're human, we recognize that they've been divinely ordained by God to carry the message to this early church. And so Paul and Barnabas stand up to debate them. They get in the way. They get in the way. Now that's who is in the wrong. So we see that the Judaizers are likely the ones who need to be corrected. We have to ask, what is at stake? They were teaching the brothers. What is at stake is the innocent, new, Gentile believers. So the Judaizers were coming down and they didn't immediately address the apostles and say, hey, can we teach this in your church? They went to the brothers. They went to the sheep. And so over and over and over again in, in the scriptures, we recognize that converts to Christianity are known as sheep. And one of the main duties of an eldership is to protect the sheep. These are new converts to Christ. They don't have a background in, in Old Testament history. They don't have a background in Moses' law. And so when the Judaizers come along from this established religion and start convincing them, it's easy to be swayed. It's easy to get on board with them because they're impressive. They're confident. They're well-spoken. There's every reason to believe in what they're saying. And so that's who is at stake. And then how is it dealt with? This is at the most basic level what's happening in our text. How is it dealt with? Paul and Barnabas have a dissension and debate with them. I've said this over and over again, but people will tell you in the 21st century that the world does not need the church arguing with itself. People are tired of seeing religious debate. People are tired of seeing the church fight amongst itself. Now, as I've said before, there are many fights that are not worth having. There are many fights not worth having. But I'd say one of the biggest issues we have in the 21st century in Canada is that not, we're not willing to have any of them. We're not willing to have the ones that matter. How is this dealt with? The apostles, you know, didn't just say, well, you know, we can probably just present both opinions and just let people decide. The apostles who were in charge of that church, they stood up. 
They got in the way between the false teachers and the sheep and said, we are going to deal with you. We are going to force your hand in this theological issue. We are going to call uh, to question your preaching. And the whole the whole thing behind this, the whole importance behind this is that false teaching creates real converts. That's the problem. False teaching creates real converts. These issues don't just happen in a vacuum, floating around, you know, ideas bouncing off each other in some formless void. There are real people at stake who believe the truth. And so the apostles say, we're not going to let our sheep go down this path of false teaching because Paul said it's not a real gospel. It's not a saving gospel. So number two, the error is examined and tried. So that's the first issue. We see that false teaching enters the church and the apostles defend the truth. But then we have to recognize that the error is examined and tried. And this is where I want to walk you through what they likely debated through. I want to open up this argument for us because it says that they they examined, it says that they had dissension and debate with them. So dissension is to say, we don't agree with you. We confront your idea. And then debate is to say, now we're going to prove why. It's not enough just to say, that's wrong, but I have no idea why. The apostles go to the text. They go to the scriptures. They go to the historic redemptive narrative of God. And they debate with them. And so what I want to do is I want to help us read our Bibles the way Christ and the apostles read their Bibles. I want us to have the same scriptural mindset as the early church. Because what they said was, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a dramatic claim. That's like somebody coming in here and saying, guys, you need to recognize, unless you give your 10% tithe to the church, you cannot be saved. I mean, if somebody stood up and said that, you can't just let that you know, sweep under the rug. You can't just say, oh, well, well, that's an opinion. Because that's a gospel, eternity, heaven, hell issue. And so they dissent. They say, no, you're wrong. And then they debate. They enter into a debate. And what I'm going to do is walk us through what that debate would have looked like. And then we're going to look, like, we're going to look at how the church benefited from this debate. As I said, uh, we're too afraid to have any fights. And we, we lose out on what the church gains through some of these council-like debates. And so I want to look at the Abrahamic covenant. Because they said, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. The last verse that Art read for us was, Any male who is not circumcised, I will cut off, for he has broken my covenant. Can any of you right now, and this is a rhetorical question, but could you, if somebody put you on the spot in a coffee shop and said, Genesis chapter 17, unless a male is circumcised, God will cut him off. Now you may circumcise your children, your boys, uh, for whatever reason, but if you don't, Somebody threw that verse down. Could you defend it? Could you defend why or why not you do that? Because the, the issue is, and this is what we face a lot of the time in our 21st century church, is that people are constantly cherry-picking verses out of the Old Testament and saying, why don't you do that? Oh, you say you're a Bible believer? Well, how come you eat pig? Well, how come you wear fabric that is blended, you know, part cotton, part polyester? That's, uh, that's punishable in the Old Testament. Why don't you keep the Old Testament law, the ceremonial law? Why don't you do it? 
Could you right now walk through a skeptic and explain to them exactly why God is not going to cut you off if you're not circumcised? Could you do that? My suspicion is that many of us couldn't. And that's okay. And that's, that's why I want to walk through this. And I want to help us understand how the Bible fits together and the fact that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Jesus, instead of throwing out the Old Testament and saying, well, that's an Old Testament angry God, he actually said every word of Scripture is fulfilled and will be fulfilled. So there's three points um, that, that God issues this covenant with Abraham. This circumcision sign was an act following the Abrahamic covenant. That is a covenant that God made with Abraham. There's three points. Genesis 13, 14 through 16 says, The Lord said to Abram before his name was changed, After Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, so your offspring will also be counted. A promise of a prolific family, of a great nation coming from him. Genesis 15, 5, he repeats it and says, He brought him outside, that is, of his tent. And it was nighttime. God brought Abraham outside of his tent. And he said, Look toward the heaven, the number of the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall you be able to number your children. And he said, So shall your offspring be. And then in verse 6 in chapter 15, it says that he believed the Lord and it counted to him as righteousness. And then a third time in Genesis 17, 4 through 6, God says to Abraham, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For you I have made the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. So three times God presents this covenant to Abraham. Here's the deal. Abraham, when he was first called by God, was 75 years old. Okay, so not many of us are that age in this church, but that's when he had his first experience with the Lord. Called, Abraham followed the Lord out of his, uh, out of his homeland, away from his family, and into faith, a, a journey that he would actually walk with the Lord. And God gave this long-term promise. He actually said to Abraham, I'm not just doing this for you and for your lifetime. So many of us in, in Christianity today, we want our obedience to have immediate blessing on us. We want the immediate effects of our obedience. We want the immediate blessing from God. Hey God, I, I obeyed you. I followed you. Like, Where's my reward? Where's my peace? Where's my health? Where's all the things I think I deserve because I followed you? Actually, Hebrews 11.39 tells us that Abraham, among many others, died without seeing the promise. God's faithfulness is a multi-generational endeavor. It's a long-term prospect. And so your obedience today and now will have consequences beyond your lifetime. The faith that my children live out and the degree to which they are faithful to God will largely be unobserved by me because it may be generations before it takes root and bears fruit in their lives. And Abraham is this amazing example where that is true. He's already old when God calls him. But over and over and over again, he says that your obedience 
Your following me is going to have generational impact. In fact, it is going to have global and eternal impact. You're going to be the father of many nations. Kings will come from you. I mean, today we don't even value, you know, what's going to happen in a year from now. And so we don't think about it. We want immediate access to blessing. We want immediate consequence. We want immediate blessing for our obedience. And yet God says, kings are going to come from you, Abraham, but you won't live to see any of it. You're going to live a largely obscure and challenging life. And so he makes this long-term promise. And he says, nations are going to come from you. Now here's the deal. Here's a little biology lesson. Most of you are way ahead of this, uh, on this than me. But to become the father of a nation, you must first have what? Babies. You must have one. You're not going to father a multitude until you father one. Now a little something about Abraham and Sarah. Sarah was barren and Abraham was old. Okay, there's just not a lot of sparks flying, if you know what I mean, in that realm. It's not a very likely, in fact, when Sarah heard the news that she was going to have a child, she laughed because she said, my husband is as good as dead. I mean, I think you know what she means. And I am barren. This is never going to happen. I mean, this is a silly promise because biologically, we're not even going to have one child. The hardest obstacle is having the first one, not having the multitudes. I mean, kings, that's easy. We need a baby right now. And so Abraham and Hagar, they have a baby because he thinks, oh, God can't bear one through Sarah. And, and God says, no, I'm going to give you and Sarah a child. That's going to be the child of promise. And we know that they do have uh, Isaac eventually. But here's the deal. You need to perpetuate that family. You need to first start by having that family. And from the time when Abraham was called, when he was 75, he was 100 or 99 years old when he bore that child with Sarah. 25 years he waited. I had my first child when I was 25 years old. That's the time from my birth to my first child. That's how long Abraham waited in his senior years to have a baby. So the reason why God gave a sign with that covenant was to say, I know you don't believe me. I know that it's going to be challenging. I know that it's unlikely. But I'm going to give you a sign and it's going to remind you of the content of this promise. This is why the sign of circumcision was given. And again, I think you get the picture. It's a reminder of where the family's coming from. Like literally where it's coming from. Okay, that's why circumcision was given as that sign. It's not arbitrary. Fathers father children through their loins. And so circumcision was given as a physical reminder, generation after generation, that God through our loins is going to bring about a great nation. It's the expectation of a promise to come. Because men would, would, um, would have children with their wives and, and, and then they would circumcise their boys and say, now this son is going to carry this line on because we know that God promised great nations are going to come from us. And there's a physical multiplication that takes place. There's literally a proliferation of children. Just literal babies, lots of babies. And in fact, in, in Egypt, they recognize that, you know, these, these Jews are good at multiplying. They are, they are super good at it. And this is this part of the reason was because they had this promise. They knew that, you know, eventually they were going to be a great nation. So they believed them. They had children. And so this is, the, this is the inclusion of the sign of that promise. 
Now, what's the significance of it? This is the second part in the, the how the truth is examined. This is how the, the apostles were walking through the debate with these Judaizers. Now, they can agree on these facts with the Judaizers, right? They're just looking at Old Testament theology here. So we need to walk through this Old Testament theology to understand who's right and who's wrong. So we need to look at the significance of it. What's the significance behind the foreskin being cut off? I mean, it, it's, it's kind of grotesque. It's a little bit crass. Why is this such an important symbol in the Bible? The first one is that it is a symbol of the reversing of the curse of Adam. Okay, in Romans chapter 5, we actually learn that through Adam, death spread to all men. Reason is because Adam is the father of every man, woman, and child on earth, right? So because he, because he adopted and, and got a, sin, a corrupt sin nature, he actually passed that on to everybody just by reproducing. His own sons were corrupted by the sin nature. This is why Cain killed Abel. Because he was Adam's son. He inherited the same nature as Adam. The same rebellious spirit as Adam was passed on to Cain and Abel. This is why Abel was bringing sacrifice as well. They both needed to atone for their sin. And it spread to all men. And through Adam, death reigned, Romans 5 says. Death was king. Death had control of everybody because we were all born after the likeness of Adam. We are all children of Adam. And so the removal of the flesh, of the foreskin, was a symbolic cleansing from that curse of Adam. Because we, as, as the males who obviously, at the head of your home, you are passing on and you are, you are essentially passing on your heritage to your children, which in Adam is sin. So all of the males needed to be ceremonially removed of that flesh, sin nature, that God was saying, I'm going to set apart these people for myself, for my own uses. Now, cutting off the foreskin did not give them a perfect nature. It did not actually remove sin. It was a sign that God was doing that. It was a sign that they were separating themselves from the sin of Adam. Uh, one thing that you may find interesting about that is this is one of the reasons why Jesus' conception was immaculate. This is why God um, impregnated Mary through the Holy Spirit. She says she is conceived in the Spirit. Because symbolically, that means that Jesus did not inherit that sin nature from his natural father. That's one of the, that's one of the key reasons why the virgin birth is, is in, integral to the gospel. Because Christ did not inherit the sin nature through our federal head, Adam. He was a descendant after Joseph by family, but he did not receive the actual seed of Joseph. He didn't receive that sin nature. And so Christ inherited the nature of his father, uh, God the creator, and he was perfect in that. And he did not inherit sin nature from his natural father. So that's the first thing, is that it's Adam's curse being symbolically reversed through circumcision. Number two is that it anticipated a seed. Part of the covenant promise was that a seed was coming. And what's going to help us uh, get clarity on this is actually, again, Galatians uh, chapter 3. Paul, in discussing circumcision, he says in 3.16, he talks about the law and promise here. And, and he says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. This is Paul doing some Old Testament exegesis right here. He says, the promise was made to Abraham's offspring. And notice this, it does not say offsprings. 
It doesn't say offsprings. It says offspring, referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So this is a New Testament exegesis of that promise. Paul goes back and looks at Genesis chapter 17 and he says, don't you notice something amazing in the grammar there? There's no plural. In other words, all these promises that are coming to Abraham's children are actually going to come to one of his children. Just one. Because only one of Abraham's children was worthy to receive it. Only one of Abraham's children kept the covenant perfectly. Only one of Abraham's children kept the law and was obedient to God and was perfect in all that he did. And that seed was Jesus Christ. This is why at the beginning of the Gospels we have a genealogy which proves that Jesus came from Abraham. He was the seed that God promised Abraham would bear. This is the the true king that would come from Abraham's loins. This This is what that boils down to. In the Abrahamic covenant, they looked ahead to a seed. They looked ahead to a child. And so the sign of that covenant, the sign of participation, the sign of faith in that promise of a king who would come with circumcision. That it says we are looking ahead through our family proliferation to a seed, to one who will fulfill this promise. And all that covenant blessing would come to that one seed. Here's the deal. In hindsight, we recognize that that seed has already come. That promise, that aspect of the promise is now fulfilled. We no longer look to the natural coming of a seed. We're not waiting for one specific child and one specific family. So the sign of circumcision has fulfilled its purpose. And when that seed came, the way that we admit our need for cleansing is not to be circumcised. It's actually to lay our whole lives down and to die in the totality of our flesh, not just our foreskins. But it's to lay down all of our flesh, to be crucified with Christ. And we enter that covenant line of Christ through faith, not through natural reproduction. We don't enter the Abrahamic covenant now through merely having babies. You are not born into the new covenant through natural birth. You're born into the new covenant through rebirth. And so this is the significance of the circumcision. Now we have to ask, does God require it of us or not? We're just walking through again. Here's the logic of the apostles. Having understood that, do we now need to be circumcised? It's, a, it's good, right? All the significance of it is good. It signifies the coming of Christ and the need for cleansing. It is a sign of faith that God is going to be faithful and he's not going to break the line. Does God require us to be circumcised to be saved? The super simple, easy way to answer this is no. And it's right in Genesis 15. And Abraham believed God... And it was counted to him as righteousness. That's it. Abraham wasn't saved by being circumcised. I mean, all theology aside, all you need is that one Bible verse to recognize God didn't save Abraham because he was circumcised. The the demand to be circumcised came in chapter 17. In chapter 15, Abraham is justified. In chapter 15, God says, I accept you. In chapter 15, God says, Abraham, you are righteous. And then in chapter 17, he says, Now I will establish my covenant with you. You must circumcise yourself and your children. 
He was already justified. He was already clean before God. He was already righteous. Paul explains this in explicit detail in one of the most beautiful passages in Romans chapter 4. And again, this is how you should read your Bible. You should let the Bible explain what the Bible means. None of it is obscure. Romans chapter 4. If you go there, you can, but if you want to just listen... Romans 4, 9 says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? That's the question that the apostles were trying to answer. Who is this blessing for? Do we all get it or is it just Jews? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? He's asking this question. He's asking the question like a preacher. He's saying, look at your Bible and figure out when God justified him. Was it before or after he was circumcised? He reserved the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. It was a seal of the righteousness. It was not the source of it. It was the seal of it. While he was still uncircumcised, the purpose, here's the purpose, was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In other words, God fulfilled that promise to Abraham, not because Abraham did something, but because he believed. He simply believed and trusted in God's promise, and God said, you are righteous. So Abraham becomes our father. Father Abraham had many sons, and many many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right? You become a child of Abraham, not through circumcision, not through blood inheritance of the heritage, not through belonging to a certain tribe. You belong as one of Abraham's children through faith. Jesus said, God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. When the Pharisees came to him, he said, don't say to me that you have Abraham as your father. I could care less what family you belong to. God is able to raise up children from these stones. Interesting picture there that as Christians, we go from a stone heart to a heart of flesh. God makes us children of the promise through faith. You are justified before God the same way every single saint in the history of time has ever been justified. Solomon, Samson, David, Moses, Rahab, all by faith in the promise of Jesus Christ. It was all accomplished through the means of Jesus Christ's blood. We all have a common uh, reason for our hope, and it is Christ. The Old Testament saints did not get to see that fulfilled. But we do. We have full assurance that God has accepted us. Now, thirdly, what does the church gain from this debate? What does the church gain by going through this uh, deconstruction and this argumentation through the theology? The first thing is clarity. 
Oh, isn't it so nice to know what's wrong and what's right? Isn't it so nice to know that something is not true, you don't have to worry about it? Isn't it so nice that your faith is clear to you? And not only clear to you, but if you wanted to share the true gospel with somebody, you're not caught up in all the silly things that people add to it. Clarity. It's so nice to be clear about the gospel. That what God has set in his word is true. And what he expects of us is clear. And that we can reject any falsehood or misunderstanding of the gospel Here's an example of that. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter preaches to a bunch of Jews. And it says that they were cut to the heart. They were all circumcised, all the men. And they cried out when they heard the gospel of Christ. They cried out, what must we do to be saved? We need salvation. And Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of of your sin. He didn't say, don't worry. Every time you go to the bathroom, you should be reminded that you're saved. No. He said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin. And so we need to have clarity that in Christ, we do not just cleanse one small part of our bodies. Jesus said to his apostles, you are already clean because of the message that I have preached to you. You have only need that I would wash your feet. Because when we are in Christ, our whole body of sin is crucified with him. It's not just one part of our flesh. It's the whole body. Romans 6 says that we know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. In other words, the power of sin might be drained from our lives. That sin would be overthrown and its power overthrown and our slavery to sin would be destroyed when our bodies of sin die. There's no other way to heaven but dying in your flesh. Death to your sin. Not just a little shaving here or there, not just a little ceremony here or there, but death. You need to crawl into the grave with Christ and die. Romans 6 also says, Do you not know that those who were baptized in Christ were also baptized in his death? So that in Christ you might also be raised up and walk in newness of life. And so the circumcision that promised a cleansing of the flesh was accomplished through baptism into Christ. This is why baptism is that outward sign that replaces circumcision. Because in the old covenant, they looked ahead to a child, and so they circumcised. In the new covenant, we look ahead to a resurrection, so we baptize. Just on an incidental note, this is why I don't baptize uh, infants, because my belief is that you enter the old covenant through natural means, through birth, and so you receive the sign of the covenant when you enter it through birth. And in the New Testament, you enter the new covenant in, by faith. And so you receive the sign of the covenant at the point at which you enter that covenant, which is why when a person believes and confesses in Christ, they are baptized. That's my personal conviction. I know there's a lot of Reformed backgrounds in here and maybe Catholic, and, uh, but that's my conviction there. And again, we, we remember Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. He said, you must be born again. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom. And Nicodemus was a member of that old covenant. He had been born into the covenant. And Nicodemus was baffled. And he said, well, what's the point of being born a second time? And Jesus said, you must be born of water and the Spirit. You need, you need a second birth in your adulthood. 
And when that birth takes place, then you need to be baptized and look ahead to that resurrection. So this is what the church gains. We gain clarity for our practice, for our conviction. We gain hope. And I'll conclude with three basic points. Number one, do not be confused about the gospel. You cannot do anything to earn your salvation. You cannot do anything to perfect the work of Christ. When he hung on the cross, his final words were, it is finished. If you're ever tempted uh, to, to believe that God has not yet accomplished salvation in your life through Christ, remember those words. It's done. All the anticipation through Old Testament devotion had been put to rest. In Christ, who had finished and satisfied God's demands for righteousness. He fulfilled the covenant to Abraham. He fulfilled the covenant to David. He fulfilled the covenant to Noah. He fulfilled the covenant to Adam. Even in Deuteronomy 10 16, it says, Circumcise the foreskin of your heart and no more stiffen your neck. In other words, it's all well and good to circumcise the flesh, but if you're not circumcised in the heart, then your neck remains stiff. You remain rebellious toward God. So don't be confused, friends. Outward signs of devotion to God are often used to avoid the inner transformation they're supposed to represent. This is why we, as humans, this is why we latch on to rituals. We latch on to habits because we think if I do that, if I control that, then I must be good. Then I must be a real Christian. Now our lives do need to bear good fruit, friends, but know the gospel that if your heart is not circumcised, you do not belong to Christ. There is only one way in, and it is through the accomplishment of Christ. Colossians 2.11 says, In him you were circumcised, not by human hands. Christ did the inner work that the old symbol was anticipating. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. When you came to him, he did away with your sin nature. He obliterated your hellbound race. He saved you from what your flesh was dragging you to do. He circumcised your whole flesh. He accomplished the death of your sin nature. So don't be confused about the gospel. That is the basis of your righteousness before God. It is faith in Christ. That's what motivates us. That's what gives us cheer to be obedient. That's what gives us hope and assurance that it is enough. We always strive for greater obedience, of course, but we do not get bogged down and discouraged by our lacks and by our insufficiencies. That is why Christ died. He died to overcome your shortfallings, your sin. Don't be confused about the gospel. Number two, accept one another. Let's not be tribalistic. We all come from different backgrounds, different struggles, uh, different assumptions about different things. Paul reminds us, you are justified the same way Abraham was. So don't go thinking that beginning in the spirit that you're going to be perfected in the flesh. Don't think that your theological credentials or your practices or your homeschooling or you know, your, whatever you do that makes you a better Christian than everyone else. That's in quotes there. That's sarcasm. Whatever it is that you think makes you a better Christian than somebody else, lay it down and receive each other. Help each other. We're all tempted to, to put forward these external things and say, look God, I'm doing it for you. And God bless you if you are, but receive each other. Have grace for one another. 
Don't create dividing lines to say, well, this, this is one level of Christianity, but you're not here. Receive each other. Love each other. Care for one another. <clears throat> and then number three, and we're going to talk about this more in the coming weeks, elders, whoever you may be in these next week, uh, you need to have courage to defend and teach the faith as God gives opportunity and allows this is, the, this is primarily the job of the eldership, to guard against error and to have courage against false teachers and to stand for the truth, whatever the social or spiritual cost. This is one of the best passages that highlights the need for and the blessing of a good, strong, biblical eldership. They are the first ones at the gate to address the enemy. They are the first ones there to protect the sheep from error. And so by God's grace, I pray that we live graciously toward one another, receiving each other, showing kindness and affection and forbearance because we're going to bother each other in the things that we do. Have grace for one another and live by faith. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do so in faith and to the glory of God. Because God has accomplished our salvation through the merits of Jesus Christ so that no man may boast. In other words, the gospel removes all boasting. So if you're boasting, you're out of step with the gospel. Let us strive for humility and acceptance of one another in the faith, but let us defend with fervency and with passion the gospel that allows us that grace for each other. Do you understand that that grace that we have for one another must be rooted in a robust understanding of who Christ is? Otherwise, how do we know that our grace is sufficient? How do we know that a person is accepted? It is on the basis of that robust truth of the gospel. And so let us strive to uphold that, to teach that among us, and to pass it on to our children who will stand in, and sit in these chairs, Lord willing, over the next generation. When new preachers come in, when new elders come in, when new people come in, when we're all gone, what is the gospel they'll be teaching here? May we pass on the truth of the gospel through his word. Let's close in prayer.